0: Listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? is there good and evil is truth relative or absolute is there life after death and to help us in our journey this evening we're very honored to welcome to our show michael e harvey an ordained rabbi hospital chaplain social justice advocate and author of a fascinating new book let's speak a rabbi talks to christians rabbi mike welcome to our show
1: Thank you so much, Rabbi Neil.
0: So, what gave you the idea for this book? Let's speak. A rabbi talks to Christians.
1: Um, so, I had a great deal of time with uh, within the congregational rabbinate, and within that time, I connected very much with my interfaith colleagues—pastors and priests and imams—and and that sort of group. I was always in charge of the interfaith council. Um, always participating in interfaith events, uh, befriending uh, those who are in the work that we do parallel uh, to the rabbinate. And as I became a trusted figure, wherever I was, whatever uh, city I was, uh, the rabbi in, um, these uh, colleagues, these Christian colleagues, became comfortable enough to contact me if they had questions. Mm. Um they'd be doing a sermon and they'd want a question about a uh, Jewish view of the prophets or um they'd be talking about something in current events and say what Mike, what what is the Jewish view on this particular subject or topic and that sort of thing? And eventually I started these started to repeat these questions, these ideas, and they invited me to their churches to speak. I spoke at their education sessions and after I don't know, seven or eight years of this, I started to think, you know, it can't be just these colleagues, Mm -hmm. these Christian clergy, let alone their congregants, who have these wonderful questions. And there seems to be a, a great gap in knowledge between true Jewish history and the Christian view of Jewish history, et cetera, as I speak about in the book. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to put it on paper and say this could be a resource for Christians around the country, around the world maybe, but or certainly around the country, not just clergy, but lay people, people who are interested in diving into their own Christianity, becoming better interfaith allies, making sure that they, as I say in my book, avoid anti-Semitic landmines mm-hmm. accidentally insulting someone. I think, you know, I was propelled by that idea that um, there is there had yet to be this sort of direct resource. There's plenty of Judaism 101 books, but this particular resource for Christians to dive into, what does a Jewish person think about this, and what do we have that's not quite right, what's a different perspective? And I started writing, and two years later, here it is. So. Uh,
0: I mean, I, I really enjoyed the se- the, the part about landmines, uh, which you just mentioned. the um, the idea that there are landmines in Jewish Christian dialogue. Can you share just a little about that? And then I want to ask you about one specific one that you focus on. What what's the what do you mean by landmines?
1: Absolutely, um, and I think that we could, you know, if we were speaking on other subjects, I think we could bring this to to many other um, situations where there are to cultures, to races, to religions, attempting to have dialogue. And each has their own assumptions, their own uh, particular language. And when I say language, I don't necessarily mean a foreign language, but you know, um, aspects within their language that they've grown up with or that they've accepted. And they have never been taught within their institution or their religion that what they're saying is actually quite offensive. Why would they been have been taught that, right? It takes an outsider to be able to point out, you know, what you're saying there or what you're reading there or this particular verse, whatever it is, actually is, is quite harmful. And if we can do it in an intellectual exercise an educated way, the way that I do it in my book, then we can avoid, as we say, the landmines where you step on it, it surprises you, the whole thing blows up, it causes irrevocable damage, And the possibility for dialogue severely diminishes, and that's what I want Christians to be able to be armed with, to say, hey, you know, I actually used to say this, now I don't say this anymore, thanks to this book.
0: Thanks to Rabbi Mike, right. So what, right. Well, if right, they
1: want to say that, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so
0: one of the one of the landmines in Jewish-Christian dialogue that you mentioned is deicide, the accusation of deicide. Why? Why do you yeah. feel that that is so important to address that charge?
1: Well, I think it's fair to say, from my studies and my investigations and my research, that the charge of deicide, meaning um, for those who don't know the idea that the Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus, the death of their Christ, Um, the the passion narrative, the blood curse, all of these things. It's clear that this is the strongest element that has created a streamline of Mm anti-Semitism for the past 2,000 years. I'm not saying it's the only one, there's all Mm -hmm. kinds of anti-Jewish aspects within the Gospels, but the charge of deicide um, creates this image of Jews, certainly the blood curse, where they said, you know, um, our blood, this, his blood be on us and our children, that it is through perpetuity, that not only were the Jews of that time collectively responsible, but Jews throughout time are collectively responsible. And there's a great deal of anger, resentment, hatred that can be put into that if it's taken literally, if it's taken... Um, you know, in a particular approach, and we have seen throughout history the results of that. I mean, um, Easter and Good Friday have Mm -hmm. been the days of severe pogroms. Um, You know, we needn't mention uh, the Crusades, the Inquisition, or the Holocaust, all of which had very much the idea of the Christ-killer epithet. And that is a huge landmine when someone says, um, you know, why do Christians not like Jews? Well, the Jews killed Jesus, right? That's a huge landmine with severe implications that I've encountered so many times that um, Christians just sort of say it. You know, there's some that, that just sort of say it out like I was right. nonchalant, but it's so deep and so dangerous that that's one that I really wanted to focus on.
0: And and I think literally deicide is the death of God, isn't it? And so that, uh, that, for me, it's always been a fascinating thing because the power in that, and if one, I've had many theological discussions with, with um, Christians and others um, and Jews as well. um, You know, God couldn't be killed unless God wanted to be killed as a sort of way to look back on that. Or somebody said, well, I I, I actually remember an actor um, who said, well, even if the Jews did kill him, it's not like he didn't come back three days later so it didn't stick anyway but that's not really the point is it the point is the anti-semitism that comes from it
1: um because and i'll mention also you're right exactly i'll mention also that you know there's the idea that if jesus had not been murdered the resurrection would not have happened a great deal of their theology would not have happened and so that's something that's called the hybrid riddle that um was coined by dr michael cook right if it was indispensable for the world's redemption, that Jesus' die, and that the Jews were a vital cog in affecting that benefit, then why blame the Jews for Jesus' death? And that in itself is a, is a troubling, you know, uh, mind-bender, right? Is, wasn't it a good thing, even if you're going to blame us, you know? But right. in the end, it's right. not about that. It's about the anti-Semitism that arises from accusing Jews of through perpetuity of deicide.
0: So if one believes that he died for one's sins, then those who, according to that scripture, killed him, I don't want to say would be thanked, but that's that riddle, that hybrid riddle. And correct. Yeah, and that was right. Mike, That was Dr. Michael Cook, right?
1: That's correct. Um, uh, a blessed memory and one who um, truly in his work inspired this book um, probably was the number one. Uh, professor, he did my, you know, he helped. He was my thesis advisor. Um, he inspired me uh, more than any any of the others who I acknowledge in terms of putting this together.
0: So. Let's just stick with him for a moment before our break. Sure. In In the chapter, let's write a few wrongs. You share this lovely chart yeah. from Dr. Michael Cook that compares Matthew yeah. chapter 12 with Matthew chapter 22. And for, so briefly, for those who are not familiar with those texts, can you share a little of what they say and, and why you feel the comparison between the two is so important?
1: Well, I think if we speak in general first, we need to understand that Mark and Matthew have some very different views and are written at very different times and political climates. Matthew is what's known as the most Jewish gospel, uh, Mark as the first gospel. And what we start to see is little hints and aspects of a little bit more of anti-Jewish rhetoric uh, as we get into Matthew. Little hints sometimes not particularly uh, subtle hints, uh, but those that separate the Jewish Christians from the Jews at that time. Um, so, you know, for instance, there's the, the passage of when um, someone is approaching Jesus with a question, right? In, in Mark, they're called scribes, and they're asking, and it has a wonderful answer, and it's this very cordial interaction. In Matthew, on the other hand, um, it's become a challenge. Uh, The the Jews, or the scribes at the time, are looked uh, as if they are testing Jesus. Um, There's no answer anymore, it's just a little bit more, uh, you know, it's looking a little less friendly. And we start to see those aspects more and more as we go through the Gospels, Mm -hmm. of removing the friendliness of Jews, removing even the aspect of Israel and connection, as Christianity was moving towards Gentiles and being anti-Jewish, until we finally get to the Gospel of John, which is the most anti-Jewish Gospel. So those comparisons, um, you know, there's lots of charts in the book that show you know, what was going on in the political climate and why Matthew looks so different from Mark, why certain things were removed to make the Jews look a little uh, maybe more, uh, you know, testy towards uh, towards Jesus, that everything was done with an agenda.
0: I, I really appreciate you setting this in, in its context of development. We have to take a break after we come back. I'd like to explore about translation and why you feel translation is so important in Jewish-Christian dialogue. But first, we have to take a break. So you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Ber Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Rabbi Mike Harvey, um, author of Let's Speak, A Rabbi Talks to Christians. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Rabbi Mike Harvey, author of Let's Speak, A Rabbi Talks to Christians. And before the break, you were talking about some of the potential landmines and the development of uh, some thought uh, from the Christian community about how it um, changed its perspective on the Jewish community through the Gospels. I think for me, one of the questions in, in even in a previous show, um, when I was talking with another member of clergy, and we were differing on what the text means and what the text says, so let's let's focus a little on translation because you have a, a lovely chapter on translation. Can you share some of your examples of why translation is so important in Jewish-Christian dialogue?
1: Absolutely, and um, and thank you. It, it translation. I'm not sure if you could tell from from the chapters is just one of the most fascinating topics. And I love to speak on it and um, the absolute uh, complication of it all. And when we're talking about translation, we're talking about a few things to mention. One is that um, just like in any language, one thing does not translate to another uh, all the time. We know this from speaking if I were to speak in French and you were to say, well, what's that word? And I'll say, well, it's not, there's not really an English right. equivalent. You know, it takes, a, you know, it takes four or five words to explain what that word is and vice versa. We can't, you can't do that when you are translating literature or, or translating divine text, certainly um, depending on how you view it. And so there are choices that translators make um, to say, well, it could mean this, it could mean this, we're going to pick this. Um, the greatest uh, and I think most important aspect of that, or example of that, is the idea of the virgin birth, right? In the Hebrew, right. it could right. be virgin, it could be young woman. In the Greek, there isn't really a word that also means <laughs> young woman, that also means virgin, so they pick virgin. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is um, translators are human beings, right? We are; uh, we have our own conscious agendas, we have our subconscious agendas, uh, agendas, meaning that if I'm translating something, uh, yes, I'm going to use the things that are around me, but I am not infallible. I, I am not uh, doing it in a vacuum. I'm going to put certain theological beliefs into my translation.
0: Right.
1: And then finally, uh, there are things that are simply untranslatable um, within the Hebrew Bible. If, if anyone looks through a uh, Tanakh, with English translation, certainly a JPS version, the amount of times you see at the bottom the asterisks, meaning of Hebrew uncertain, right? There are sentences that we could piece together with the meaning of the words, but we just can't make a sentence out of Well, that's not okay in another language. They need to make choices to do that. So when someone reads something in Greek, in Latin, in English that comes from Hebrew, uh, besides being a game of telephone where a great deal is lost, Mm Um, You are not getting the complexity and the ambiguousness and beauty of the Hebrew. In fact, you are learning one person's or a certain group of person's or a school of thought view on how you should read it. You are under that influence, and I think people lose that.
0: And I think it's so important because... You know, as as we, as, as rabbis know, you know, we translate things differently even between ourselves. You know, the, the yeah. one example that comes to my mind is the word mitzvah, which uh, many people translate as <laughs> commandment. Uh, my teacher, Rabbi Eli Tikva Sarah, translates as compelling commitment. And so, you know, even there... You know, as you said, every translation speaks of the translator as much as anything else. So that's always the challenge when people say, but the text says, it, well, does it? Or, you know, where are you getting that translation from? I, I, I really love that chapter because it, it clearly showed your, your passion for this. I mean, there, there, yes. was so, there are so many good chapters in this book. There's, there's the one which I, which I really enjoyed, this easy answers to 18 big questions. And um, one of the questions that you share is, don't we Jews and Christians alike worship the same God? So I wonder if you could share your answer to that question. And why do you feel that is such an important question?
1: Absolutely. So, um, yes. that So all of these questions I receive uh, so frequently. Um, I picked 18 for obvious Jewish reasons. Um, but the this question you know don't we Jews and Christians alike worship the same god so often in interfaith dialogue mm-hmm. um, by uh, lay people we hear well it's all the same god we worship the same god and and the uh, the intention is is good it's a, it's an attempt to merge together and find common ground but it's actually not true uh, we don't uh, worship the same god the jewish god as my answer says Uh, which has evolved, of course, through biblical and rabbinical literature, um, is certainly not the same deity as the Christian God within any of the 40,000 denominations of the Christian God. The Christian God, who they call the Father, part of the Trinity, for those who believe in the Trinity, um, exists along Jesus or uh, the Son of God and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes there's God and Jesus together, all those sort of aspects. None of that exists within the Jewish faith, right? Mm -hmm. The anthropomorphism, Idea right. of God um, is not a particularly Jewish view. The idea that God would have a son is not a particularly Jewish view. Um, the way we worship, right? God has a communal understanding and relations to us, relationship to us. But Christians find uh, an individual relationship uh, with their God. All of these are just. Um, just a few examples of how important it is to say, well, uh, maybe at a certain point there were some similarities, maybe there are some similarities, but it's incorrect, factually incorrect, to say we worship the same God, just as we would with our Muslim friends, right? Right. Isn't um, God and Jesus and Allah the same God? Well, perhaps at a certain level, yes, but it's misleading to say so. Right.
0: I described um, in an earlier show um, words of the wisest person in my life, who is my wife, uh, Rabbi Jenny Goldfried Amswich, who described the religious search as the journey to school. Some people go by car, some by bus, some by bike, some walk, so we may all be pointing in the same direction, but that doesn 't mean we take the same route and for me i would I would apply that lesson to what you 're saying in that the search for God is what unites us. That doesn't mean that we all have the same view of God.
1: Yes, I think that's that's beautiful. I, I think that is, what, uh, that is at the core of what interfaith dialogue and interfaith relations can be. And to say that, you know, uh, nobody is, at least in, of, the, of the groups that I have met, I have never met anyone who is supportive of homelessness, of poverty, right, right. of violence like uh, we're all against the the maladies of the of the world and so if my god takes me there and your god takes you there to the same spot and we're at the same march we're at the same charity event whatever it is then wonderful but that does not mean that we're uh you know we should celebrate our diversity instead of saying, well, we're the same God brought us here.
0: And I I do think there's been a development in interfaith dialogue over the last four decades, essentially, which does seem to be in the 80s and 90s. There was particularly, well, we're basically all the same. Um, and that may have been a, right. a reaction to people saying, you know, religion is so divisive, and so we just say, look, we're all basically the same. We all believe in the golden rule, however you want to put that. But, but then when you, but then you can't have any meaningful dialogue if you're everyone sitting down saying, yeah. are we? So we're all essentially the same. The the strength for me in interfaith dialogue is in saying you and I view things differently, so teach me what yours how yours is different, so your view of God and my view of God has some similarities, but if I don't believe that God can become incarnate in the flesh, then there is very definitely a difference between us and and vive la différence yeah. basically
1: absolutely, and you can say that's a beautiful image, it's not ours um, and and you know as long as we don't step on each other's toes with proselytization or whatever it is. Then, wonderful. If if your belief in your God helps you stand next to me to fight injustice, um, to fight the you know the problems of the world, then great. If no belief in God helps you do that, great. I mean, with the goal uh, for us to improve our world, um, you know, is is really the more important uh, view than than. Trying to force similarities, and uh, I try to emphasize that that diversity is not a bad thing. These these differences of opinion, these differences of interpretation, are not a bad thing. The more educated we are, the more friendly and accepting we can be uh, to one another, and be able to say, "Hey, you know, you're speaking a little Christianese there. I can't really follow." You know, like when someone said this word grace i've never heard Mm. of the word grace i don't know what that means from a jewish point of view in the same way that uh you know i and i know that many of my colleagues are guilty of sprinkling in a little bit of hebrew or yiddish into our uh our words and and we're leaving people out um they don't know what that means and so knowing your audience and interfaith dialogue um you know and how to prepare yourself to do that um will help you achieve your goals i think i think smoother and and faster
0: I love, I love the phrase you're speaking Christianese because then how often do I speak Jewishese um and yes. <laughs> uh, but I I think one of the one of the things that your book really brought out for me is the is the challenges of our assumptions and um, being able to to move beyond our assumptions, or at least to own our assumptions, um, our assumptions about text, about theology, philosophy, and to be able to say, but this is actually what we believe. Um, the example of grace that you give is literally one that we had on the show about 20 shows ago, um, where, I yeah. said, where I said, wait, I use, when I hear you saying we want grace with our Jewish neighbors, I, I hear that very differently. So I, yes. guess, I guess in the final few minutes, it's, it's easy for us to, to say this is where we differ. And it's easy for us to, and it's important for us, as, as in your book, it's important for us to identify the landmines and to identify our biases that we bring into the text. But with all of this talk of challenging topics and potential landmines, in the final two minutes, what can Jews and Christians celebrate together?
1: a great question, and my I have a whole chapter on what we can celebrate. Uh, Not our holidays, but uh, what we can celebrate is that uh, we, both Jews and Christians, uh, should recognize and can celebrate the task in front of us, which is that usually what we're walking around quote-unquote knowing um, is not the whole story. And if we provide each other with uh, gentle intent to learn about each other and about ourselves, um, then we will strengthen not only our own faith, but strengthen each other's faith and faith in each other. Um, the idea that um, the average layperson in, in both Jewish and Christian circles, there's such a gap between that and the, and the rabbis or the pastors and the priests, and this book is a celebration of saying, you know, we can narrow that gap. There's little things that we can do to make you feel that you have a little bit more confidence in what you're doing as you engage in interfaith dialogue.
0: I I've so appreciated you being here. I so appreciate your book. I think it is a really important uh, contribution to interfaith dialogue. Um, Rabbi Mike thank Harvey, you. thank you for being on our show this evening. Thank you. So thank you to Rabbi Mike Harvey, uh, author of Let's Speak, a Rabbi Talks to Christians, which is available now. Thank you for coming on to our show. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks time, keep searching.